0: Hello, my name is Ran, and this is the Flow Artist Podcast. Every episode, we interview inspiring movers, thinkers, and teachers about how they find their flow and much, much more. Now, normally we release our podcast on a fortnightly schedule, but we were getting way too far ahead with our interviews, so this week we have an extra special bonus episode. This episode is a recorded conversation between myself, co host Joe Stewart, and Ashton Zabo. Ashton Zabo is a yoga teacher, a self-described anatomy geek, and host of the Anatomy of Living podcast. Ashton is based in Encinitas, California, so we were very lucky to have the opportunity to record a conversation with him online. I'm a huge fan of Ashton's work as a podcaster, and he is one of my inspirations for starting this podcast, so I am super excited to be able to share this episode with you. In this conversation we talk about Ashton's story growing up and how he found yoga through an interest in the martial arts. We hear how he packed up his life in the US and moved to a small island in Thailand and what his life was like there. We learn how Ashton's interest in thinkers like Joseph Campbell and Alan Watts led to him becoming the inspirational storyteller he is. We also learn how Ashton uses his extensive knowledge of both Eastern philosophy and anatomy in the classes he teaches. As well as that, there is plenty more good stuff in this interview. Before we get started with this conversation though, I have two small favours to ask you, just two. Firstly, if you haven't already, we would absolutely love it if you subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Spreaker, Stitcher, Podbean or wherever you get your podcast from. It would really help us spread the word and get this podcast out there. Secondly, we have entered in the Australian Podcast Awards. Now, we know it's a long shot. It's a huge long shot as we are up against some pretty big competition. But if you could vote for us, that would be just amazing. I'll leave a link in the show notes. Now, I've talked for way too long, so let's get on with the interview. Thanks so much for speaking with us, Ashton. Um, we like to get a bit of a feel of, of the person we're talking about and, and their background and what led them to where they are now. So perhaps you could start by telling us a little bit about your background and what your childhood was like.
1: I grew up in, uh, in Los Angeles, in California, and uh, kind of had a, a typical childhood uh, for most purposes, I guess. But uh, I was fortunate enough that I was exposed to martial arts at a very young age. Um, I've been doing martial arts since I was five. And it was actually through my my jitsu sensei when I was 12. He started teaching us yoga as part of the practice oh, uh, that nice. we would do. And um, because of that, yoga and martial arts have both been a pretty steady presence my, my entire life. And uh, eventually... In my, my teenage years, those were those were rough years for me, I guess. Um, I was never a really big fan of school. I actually ended up leaving high school early, taking my my proficiency exam, which is basically a high school diploma equivalency. And then I, uh, I went to go work in the video game industry for a few years, eventually went back to college, did that for a little bit, uh, played some college football, was studying uh, exercise, physiology, nutrition, philosophy, and then eventually kind of stepped away from that as well got more into to body work and massage which was actually something that uh, our jiu-jitsu sensei had also taught us he was teaching us shiatsu along with things like yoga and so started getting really heavily into that went to vocational schools for that for a number of years and then worked professionally for a number of years and then uh, then once that started to to settle in realized how much that was uh, affecting my own body working with people like that and just things starting to to break down a lot and all that and that kind of got me more into to teaching and then back into yoga as well as a more serious steady practice and and yeah i mean i just kind of started moving into things from there i mean there's we're we're getting into older years now so i don't know if it's <laughs> childhood anymore but uh i mean that's a that's a basic look at the at the past i guess
2: ah oh, sounds like a physical and a spiritual practice has really been with you since the very early years. So, was your family into martial arts, or how did you find your way there?
1: No, um, not at all. Uh, and my parents are are not religious; they wouldn't consider themselves spiritual, any of those sorts of things. But they were they were always very supportive of whatever it was that I wanted to try. So, when I was I expressed an interest in martial arts at an early age, they were very supportive of that. That's where I was really getting exposed to a lot of the various spiritual ideas for a, a number of years, especially late teens, early twenties. I would say that I, I identified as being a Taoist, so a lot of Taoist philosophy impacted the way that I, I viewed the world. But yeah, it was nothing. None of that was specifically coming from my family, but they were always, you know, receptive and open to what I was doing, even if it wasn't something that interested
2: them. I mean, they obviously must have seen the benefit that it was having in your life at the time. Yeah,
1: and I'm sure, especially with in the in the context of martial arts, they appreciate the structure and the discipline and all that, which is, as you said, is something that they can they can see.
2: So, um, obviously, your your martial arts sensei was a really key teacher in your life. Have you got any other key teachers that you've discovered along the way?
1: Well, I mean, I, as far as the biggest impact he has had, the the biggest impact uh, of any teacher in my life. You know, I I, I try to to look at the world as a student all the time anyway. So I kind of see everybody as a teacher. And so, I mean, like in terms of the the hierarchy of everybody else of like, look, everyone has an opportunity to teach me something. Um, mm-hmm. So they're, they're all my teacher. But when I kind of go back to what really shaped me as an individual, I mean, my, my sensei, Steve Copping, he was by far the most influential over my life. I mean, I could list off a whole bunch of other teachers that I love and appreciate. But again, I mean, in terms of like the, the real impact that I could see that changed my life and was around physically the most, that would be Steve Copping.
2: And just thinking to your massage work as well, like just being so hands-on and energetically connected to all those bodies, that must have really kind of formed your understanding of how unique everyone's anatomy is and how all of those muscles work together in a slightly different way. Would that does that sound right
1: to you? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think that that was kind of the, the transition from doing so much body work and then into to teaching yoga. I already kind of had an understanding of how the body was working. One of the things I, mean, I teach anatomy now to yoga teachers and one of the things that's really missing in yoga trainings in general is anatomy, physiology, understanding how the body's actually working. And that was something that in massage, we, we got a lot more in depth but also even then quite limited because you're dealing more with someone that's on a table. You're not looking them in movement and with loads and all these different types of things. So, uh, but you still have to kind of understand what might be the cause of the things that we're feeling and seeing in the bodies when we're working on them. So yeah, those two have always been very wonderfully connected for me. And I think even for for anyone that that is a yoga teacher, having some type of exposure to Uh, massage and body work is a really beneficial thing to understanding
2: the body more. And definitely as a yoga teacher, getting regular massage and body work (laughs) is so important for me anyway. Um, I was wondering when you're teaching and you obviously have this real depth of anatomical knowledge, how much of that do you kind of articulate as you teach and how much of it is just in the background informing something like your sequencing?
1: Well, I, on some level, both I would say, but really, I I don't try to bring a whole lot of anatomical language into my yoga classes. Yeah. I have kind of what like I call like the the front door and the back door conversations, where it's like behind the scenes, talking to teachers and things like that. We'll use the anatomical language um, when I'm sequencing. I'm thinking very much from that perspective, but when when it's in a class, it's I, I would rather they're they're getting the idea of what we're looking to do in the body rather than understanding like externally rotate your right femur as you, you know, retract yeah, your scapula. Yeah. Um, you know, so there's not a lot of very specific, uh, anatomical languaging, but uh, that also came over time. Cause at first I used to teach with a lot more, uh, anatomical, or anatomical words uh, and getting a lot more specific with that. Now it's a little bit more loose with the terminology, but obviously we still spend a lot of time on, on alignment in my classes for sure.
2: Yeah, I think if you kind of have too many kind of Latin names for muscles and complicated concepts, it just pulls people out of their bodies and into their heads and it can just be confusing for people.
1: Well, and so much of the cues, uh, to me anyways, in the way that I teach, they're, they're not about getting the body to a certain place. They're not about the, the posture looking a certain way. I mean, part of it, there's, there's safety in mind in terms of understanding the basic mechanics of the body and some actions that we want to create. But there are more invitations of awareness because everyone's anatomy is so different that, yeah. sure, maybe one person needs a little more, you know, external rotation this way and another person needs it more internal because of the way that their their bodies are positioned. So... Uh, really giving people the if you give them too specific of cues then it can kind of confuse that and make them think oh well i'm doing that but that's causing me pain well the person next to them they're doing that and that's what they need to get stable so it's more about finding those areas and bringing awareness to those areas so the students can explore it themselves
0: yeah nice excellent well i guess maybe to switch the topic a little bit you lived abroad for a while and i'm pretty curious about that actually perhaps you could Tell us about how that came about and, and what the whole experience was like for you.
1: So in my, my mid-20s, my whole life, I mean, even when I so when I got out of high school, one thing that I didn't kind of add on that is I actually ran away for a couple of weeks from home first because I was pretty adamant that I, I wanted to... To just kind of get away from everything. One of the things that I did before that was I was actually researching monasteries in the United States, and I had this whole plan in my head that like I'm going to run away to a monastery and just become a monk, and ah. like that's going to be it. And so in my my mid twenties, I actually still had that plan. Essentially, it was actually a, a trip to China that I took where I was studying esoteric Taoism and Buddhism, and uh, we we're spending a lot of time in monasteries and, and hiking around sacred mountains. And that was the time when I I really had this dramatic shift of like, wow, you know, had I just grown up in a different culture, all these questions that I had struggled with, all these feelings that like, I just wasn't being understood or heard. There's these other cultures where if I had those same questions, they would have been like, oh yeah, just go, go talk to that person over there on the mountain over there or in the monastery. And like, it's held culturally. Um, When you know when I used to ask those questions growing up here like why are we here? What's the meaning of life? People are like you don't ask those questions You go to school and get a job and like make money. That's what's important. And so it it really like shifted this struggle that I had had for so long of like needing to to get my uh, round peg into a square a square hole um, and just said wow I can you know I could do this and so I I had a, a wellness business at the time. I was doing a body work, cleansing and fasting programs, some yoga. Uh, I had actually done my my first yoga teacher training right before that trip to China. And I, I packed some of my stuff in storage, sold or gave away the rest. I, I left my car at my parents' house, got a one-way ticket to Asia, and uh, left for, originally for Thailand. Uh, I went there and did my second yoga teacher training with a man named David Goulet uh, in pyramid yoga. And that was a really amazing experience. It was a three-month immersive experience, really covered a lot of aspects of the practice that I had never been exposed to before. And I, I didn't have any plans on staying in Thailand, like the, the big step was always India. Uh, yeah. So after that training for a little bit, I went to India, spent a number of months there, ended up coming back to Thailand. And then over the period of the next six years, spent a lot of time, I'd spend about three quarters of the year in Thailand, particularly because what, what happened was I came back to help out on that teacher training that I had taken that first year, and so it kept kind of calling me back there. So I'd spend the majority of the year there, then during the rainy seasons I'd either go to India or I spend some time in South America. Most years I'd come back to the United States if I could for at least a, a, a month or two, but uh, that didn't always happen. So I ended up getting primarily based in uh, in Thailand, but made trips back to India uh, traveled around South Southeast Asia. Uh, basically, I had a little hut that I kept on uh, on an island in Thailand. That uh, if I was traveling, I would leave like my my heavy yoga mat and you know the books that I had and stuff like that, and then just go travel and then come back to Thailand to that place. Uh, so that was kind of home for for six and a half years.
2: Yeah! Wow. And so through that time, was your main income from helping on the teacher training or like, how did you swing that for six years?
1: <laughs> well, I mean, part of it was, was the cost of living in Thailand for sure. Um, but one thing that, that I was very fortunate and, and lucky with was that before I uh, had closed down my business before, or actually even significantly before all of that, I sold a, a condo uh, that I was living in in Los Angeles before I'd moved down to San Diego. And that's where I started my wellness business and all of that. And so I had put most of that money away in a in a CD because I wasn't planning on on buying anything again anytime soon with it. So uh, whatever money I'd made from that was just sitting in that CD. So I'd use that to live off of for for a number of years.
2: And I'm sure um, you were living pretty frugally at the time.
1: Yeah, absolutely. But I mean, like I said, in in a in a Thailand place like that, I mean, you're looking at you know you can you can spend a dollar or two on each meal uh, yeah. and still eat yeah. like a king. You know the I think the biggest expense there was probably like, uh, massages and that was still only like $5, you know? So it's, it's, things have gotten more expensive there now, I'm sure. And they were towards the time that I was leaving, but still the, the means with which we would live there, uh, were so small compared to, you know, just what would even be expected in the United States that all of those things that add up in the Western world to, to make the cost of living so high, just don't exist there. Or maybe they do, but you know, I, I just wasn't, you know, engaging them living on a little tropical island.
2: Yeah, we're drinking those cocktails or anything. <laughs> yeah,
0: I think you're an amazing storyteller. I, I love the way you share Hindu mythology, and you're able to explain the symbolism and and deeper meaning of of these myths very clearly. How did you learn these stories, and and how did you develop your approach to storytelling?
1: Well, one of the things that or one of the things that really kind of got me interested in storytelling, and when you were asking earlier about teachers that have had impact in my life, the the teacher that really got me into storytelling was Douglas Brooks. I had heard back in the, the day, he had recorded a number of lectures that he had done when he was involved with Anusara on various deities and Hanuman. And that was my first real exposure to someone telling these stories in a way that landed with me as a Westerner Uh, as an American of like wow like these are actually stories speaking to me you know whereas before I might not have seen it the same way it might have been someone else's story Um, Mm -hmm. he had this amazing way of making it our story Mm -hmm. and um, that really inspired me to kind of dive into the mythology so much more Uh, and then from there it was you know reading books listening to other storytellers. I mean, anything that I I could get my hands on and still can get my hands on. I I try to just because I love hearing all these different versions of the stories. I mean, that's one of the beautiful things about storytelling in particular within these traditions within India is that as many people have told the stories, there's that many different versions of them. Mm. Um, People don't get too caught up in the like, well, which is the factual one, which is the right one. They're, they're not, I mean obviously they're they're telling the one that they think expresses what they're looking to express the most but it's not about right or wrong it really becomes about what do you what are you trying to say with this what are you trying to communicate by telling the story and so because there's that freedom in variety you've got all these different stories that speak to all these different people in different ways and i find that really fascinating it really brings brings all of these stories home to us in a way that's accessible and understandable and then we start to recognize like oh wow these symbols and these images are really talking about us they're talking about our lives like we are the character in all of these stories and we're all the characters in all of these stories so it's about insight into our own psyche And our own experiences as individuals and uh, I think that's something that I I really appreciate and love and which brings me to these stories and then I love them so I love to share them and that kind of just kind of comes through with everything else and yeah I think I mean there's not just even Hindu stories obviously but uh, stories across the globe Mm -hmm. Um, there's such a powerful transformative tool. I've, all, I've always been a really big fan of Joseph Campbell's work as well and I think I was exposed to him uh, in my early teens and just seeing the the lens of all these stories through the hero's journey and the monomyth uh, that was all spoken about by Joseph Campbell. Um, really helped me see these stories in a different light as well. Even when I wasn't getting them from the container of of Douglas and and how he would express them in such digestible ways. Now when I was getting stories, it was like, oh, I, I understand what's being talked about behind them. And I think things really come alive for all of us once we kind of allow that that little bit of depth and exploration into all the stories. And that point, I mean, watching even, you know, garbage movies, you can see like, oh, I see what's happening in the story here and what this is, and what that guy represents and what that means for my life. And, you know, like we're being a, a storyteller and, and my family, I have a young daughter. It's funny, like if you were to sit down and watch movie a movie with us or something like that, we're constantly like predicting story arcs and like talking about like what the symbolism of that was and what that means like oh did you notice that character just fell into the water and that's really symbolic of going to the subconscious mind and you know so we super geek out on stuff like that but uh it's uh it's really fun
2: even your own kind of path through life has got a little echo of the hero's journey to it kind of like looking for truth and looking for meaning in life as well and traveling the world well, no, I
1: think that. that's true for everyone, right? I mean, sure, that's, yeah. that's, 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 awesome. the, that's the whole point of it. Yeah, yeah. is that like, that's, that's all of our journey. And there's the, there's the big journey, but there's also those mini journeys all throughout our lives that, that still follow that same basic pattern. And, and that's why I think it is so impactful for us and, and being able to see stories that way, because then it really is about us. It's not about some other person in some other place in time that did something. It's about us right now and what we're doing.
2: I guess this is a little bit similar to my how much anatomy do you weave into your teaching? How much of this philosophy and storytelling richness comes into your regular class that you teach all the time? Or is this more something you kind of say for a workshop or for your podcast?
1: The balance has shifted over the years. From earlier on, there was probably more anatomical focus. And now as the years have gone by, there's more philosophical and storytelling focus. You know, that being said, uh, not every class includes story. The vast majority of classes will include tantric philosophy within them in some respect. But I would say the, there's more of an emphasis of those types of things nowadays than before, um, whether I'm specifically telling a story or uh, just kind of bringing in the philosophy about it. But obviously the context of a, of a podcast or a workshop versus a class. In a class, you might get the, like the elevator pitch so to speak um, you know you've got like the what's the quickest version of the story that we can tell that to still get the message across and then um, beyond that then it's okay well in a workshop now we can really get into the details of the story and really uh, find the, the impact in our lives and sometimes I'm still threading stories throughout the, the class as well but even then um, it's, it's much less than something like on the podcast or uh, in a workshop
2: and so what led you to podcasting
1: uh, really fortunate circumstances, I guess. A friend of mine worked for a company in San Diego when I was still living there. Uh, he did a lot of work for them on their, their blog and the work that they did. And essentially they were a yoga lifestyle company and they sold lots of things online and you know, yoga clothes and malas and statues and things like that. And they were looking for ways of expanding their offering. They are like, look, we can spend money on advertising or we could spend money on content. We'd rather spend money on content. So they hired me to, to come in and create a podcast for them. And it wasn't something that I had done before, but just being a, a lifelong learner, any opportunity to learn something new, I'm like, yeah, heck yeah, I'll, I'll try that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I already knew that I, I love telling stories and, and love talking to people about things. So it seemed like a pretty organic fit. That being said, and there's, there's a lot to learn, as, as I'm sure you guys know of like, oh, you actually have to kind of like learn like interviewing technique and like understanding like audio issues and, and editing and Production sides of things and all kinds of stuff that came in. So that kind of came obviously as things went along. And then when I left that original project and then was just been working on my own podcast, it's the same similar sort of thing of just really enjoying being able to create the relationships and talk to the people that i have over the time and also as a means of, of sharing these really amazing stories that have transformed my life so much
2: yeah something that we've really loved as well is it's not really a meditative process because you're interacting with someone else but it seems so rare in life when you have a full hour or more just to talk to someone with no outside distractions or anything else going on and i really loved that aspect of it. Is there any kind of favorite aspects of podcasting that you've come across?
1: Probably for me, what I've really loved is that it's allowed me relationships with people that I, if I didn't have a podcast, I would have never been able to speak to before. Yeah, so it's like, I mean, the fact all of a sudden, it's like, Oh, I have a podcast. Now I can reach out to, to this person or that person and have a meaningful conversation with them, which, you know, before, if it was like, Hey, my name's Ashton, you want to chat with me for an hour? <laughs> yeah, you know, right? People are like, ah, no, I don't think I have the time. Yeah. Um, but now because there's that that extra means, I mean, I've had some amazing relationships that have developed over that. And I was speaking to you guys before we, we started the, the podcast about a particular book by an author, von Amali, a teacher, von Amali. And I mean, I have read every book that she has written. They're all story-based. They're all about the various Hindu uh, gods and things like that. And she's been someone that also really grew my desire to to get more into storytelling. Well, because of that, I was able to reach out to her publisher, get her contact information and say, like, hey, I'd love to have you on the show. She came on my my older show, but I've stayed in touch with her over the over the months through email and through various offerings that she has and all kinds of stuff. And it was like, wow, I mean that that's so amazing that that I was able to like make that connection uh, of someone that was so so impactful in my life, things like that have just been really, really wonderful that, that I found that I've been able to, that the podcast has, has allowed. And I'm, I'm super grateful for
2: that. And not only make that connection, like bring that person's work to more people to kind of yeah. do something nice for them as well.
1: Well, and that's the, that's the exchange, of course, of like, hey, I'm not just some stranger wanting to have a chat for an hour, but we'll, we'll share this and that will mm. share your message out there. And obviously, uh, if they're on the show, it's, it's someone that I, I appreciate and want their message out there for more people. And so that's such a nice thing to, to be able to share the fly on the wall experience with that. And it's super special for sure.
2: This is a slight change in direction, but um, obviously you moved back from your time in Asia to to the United States. I can only imagine that must have been a bit of a shock to the system, especially with the current political climate. Would you like to talk a bit about that process?
1: You said "been" as in past tense. (laughs) I'm. I still like. I mean, to this day, it's my biggest struggle. I mean, I'm not. There's no no sense to me trying to like hide that or like I that that (laughs) I struggle with that every day, and I don't really have a good answer at this stage of the game i'm you know we're here because of family you know my my daughter really th- is thriving where we are we're close to my parents my father-in-law and my mother-in-law live really close as well they're just on the other side of the hill so they're like a, an hour and a half two hour drive away you know got my wife's family there so that's been really important to us but yeah, I mean, as you said, uh, politically, I'm, I'm not such a fan of what's going on right now in this country. Yeah. That being said, though, even with that, like, especially around the election time, I was really angry and upset and like, screw this, we're out of here. And one of the things that has settled a lot for that, at least in terms of the, the escapist part of it, is recognizing that, like, a lot of the other countries that I'd be living in anyways are a lot more corrupt than our American system. The only reason why I could kind of avoid that is, is for, for lack of a better term, because of my white privilege. Mm -hmm. Um, to say like, hey, like the color of my skin and where I come from affords me certain liberties that for people living in those countries, they don't have. And so my thought process was like, It's not any better. It's not like, I mean, if the government is the reason why I want to leave, well, then moving to the countries that I would have on my list, that's about as hypocritical as it could come. You know, to be here and at least try to impact the political process however it is that I can, whether that's, you know, just a one-on-one relationships with students and talking to them about things that, that I care about and then engaging in meaningful dialogue around that or even things through the podcast at times, or or just straight up voting. Uh, any of these types of things I feel are important in that sphere for that. So my, my struggle is is less with that. My struggle is more on the kind of day-to-day cultural differences. I always growing up felt very alienated in this culture. The things that I cared about and the questions that I had were never held and supported culturally, versus these other cultures it was. Like, again, I, I don't live in some fantasy world thinking that like oh well you know let's all find a place where we could live free of money and yeah. <laughs> you know live in some utopian thing like things like money matter everywhere you can't escape that but there are other cultures they say well yeah of course but money's not the most important thing your relationships are your quality of life is and they might pay some mouth service to that here in the united states but it's not actually lived at all for everyone it's like you security Security is the thing for Americans and security comes through money and so everyone is just killing themselves to work So, you know, even if you wanted to go live up in the mountains in this country and kind of be away from it all The cost of living of everything else is so high that it kind of necessitates that you play the game because it's so hard to just be Disconnected out basic example if something happens with my motorcycle here and I or my car and I want to take to the shop we're looking at hundreds of dollars just to have somebody look at the thing versus in these other countries, like, cool, okay, my, my motorcycle breaks down, I take it to the guy, it's like $10, you know, it's, it's a completely different experience in terms of some of those overall costs of living where, I mean, even in Europe, you know, where, where we're talking, the ideas are on siesta or vacations where it's like, well, yeah, why would you just want to work all the time? But Americans hold it like a badge of honor, like, I haven't taken a vacation in six years, <laughs> you know, and it's like, I'm really, I feel really sorry for you. <laughs> like no. they're, they're saying it like it's something to be proud of. And I'm like, man, that is like, that's sad. There's so much of that identity around work here. And, and I, I love to, I love what I do. I'm, I'm extremely passionate about the work that I do. But if my entire life is centered around that, then there's always going to be this like, well, I, I need more. I need to make sure that I've got that that security and that comfort and that, you know, the, the future is taken care of. And oh my gosh, I'm there's always that basic anxiety. That's something that I feel in almost everyone here, no matter how much money they make. I mean, they could be making minimum wage or they could be making hundreds of thousands of dollars a year. Under the surface, everyone's carrying this anxiety with them of like, I don't have enough and I'm not enough. And that's something that's very endemic in our culture here that like we never have enough and so it keeps this drive and that's already what the mind is trying to trick us all into anyways for it to be supported by the culture becomes even more dramatic and man i i just i struggle with that a lot because like i said it's hard not to be here and not be affected by the, the implications of that type of mindset And, you know, it's a struggle for sure. I think
2: it's a particularly interesting um, challenge for yoga teachers, because on one hand, part of this practice is that money is the least important thing, although obviously, you know, everyone needs food and shelter. And it seems like there's a lot of disconnect between the realities of the work that you need to do to be a self-employed yoga teacher and the whole kind of abundance mentality where if you write enough affirmations on your fridge, all of that money will just flow to you. And I like I see it a lot online and it's something that I definitely work with myself with finding that balance between, okay, today's my admin day, I'm going to do this. Or, you know, there's certain aspects of teaching yoga that don't feel particularly yogic sometimes where you're just like, all right, I'm not really in the moment with this, but i just got to get this stuff done because this is part of this job. And even the changing landscape of how much work is actually out there for teachers and especially new teachers. Would you like to speak a little bit about that aspect of being a yoga teacher?
1: I think money is obviously an interesting thing for yoga teachers. It's something that I personally don't have as much of the, the stigma or issue around perhaps as I did when I started. Part of the reason being is that yoga in the culture that it comes from is held by the culture that is to say if you wanted to say i don't care about money i just want to like do yoga all day and connect with god and i'm i'm happy to share what i find with all of you people will go oh cool okay you can go stay in that little hut over there and we'll bring you food every day that's really nice of you thank you yeah, um, yeah. and so money in that context a lot of times like yoga is given away for free because it's like hey it's it, they're being held and supported by the culture Now, when we take that and we put it in our culture where, you know, if you want to say like, I just want to sit around and do yoga all day and like connect with God, people are like, you're a bum. You're, you're, you're affecting our system. If you're not joining our system, that's a problem. And so how to flip that over creates all kinds of weird disconnected stuff for people because they think, well, this is supposed to be free. Mm -hmm. I don't think it's supposed to be free. I have no problem with the exchange of money through that and and valuing ourselves as teachers, getting paid what we should be getting paid as teachers in the West my practice is not a a dualistic one. It's not a transcendent one. It's not concerned with getting to some other place in time or consciousness in the future that has nothing to do or is nothing like the experience you're having right now. And that's where God is. And that's the point of yoga. This is it here now, all of it. And so part of the skillfulness of how we engage all of that is really what's at play with our yoga without saying that like, this is just an illusion that we're, we're living in and we need to go find Purusha over there in some other place. It's like, no, this is, this is it here. So one of the things that you touched on, I think, is in terms of like, well, what is the money though? Because if the focus is the money, well, now we start shifting values. If the yoga is the money, but we're willing to say like, hey, but there's a value to what I have here. I live in a culture that we, we work predominantly with money. I can't pay my rent with good karma. Yeah, it's so it's like I have to be able to sustain myself. And what is that worth based on my my training my practice the amount of time that I have spent and continue to spend on that looking at like looking at it like any other vocation out there and really valuing our work as yoga teachers. I think, you know, tying to some of the other things you said of like, there's this production of yoga teachers right now it's hard to find work because there's so many yoga teachers getting pumped out all the time because the teacher trainings are such income generators for studios you know that that creates all kinds of problems in and of itself because now you've got a lot of low-paid inexperienced people that for yoga studios where money is the factor again now it says well i can have a a more senior teacher who gets paid more who maybe or maybe does not bring in the same number of students or I can pay this new teacher nothing and sometimes literally nothing that like you know companies like Core Power, they make you teach I don't know how many classes for free before you can teach for them that type of thing where it's like now it's because it's about their bottom line but now you've got a lot of teachers who are they're so desperate for work they will teach for that lesser fee but then that just kind of brings everything else down as well and I mean, it's, it's an unfortunate situation and I don't know exactly the avenue out of it, but it's definitely something that is a problem and a challenge in the, in the industry as a whole right now for yoga teachers.
0: And on that, do you think that most teacher trainees have a realistic sense of life as a yoga teacher?
1: I don't know. I mean, obviously on a personal level, I don't know. Um, in terms of my experience and what I've, what I've seen with students that have been on my teacher trainings and things like that. Probably not. Uh, mm-hmm. I think there, I remember actually back maybe 20 years ago when things like a, uh, like, like a massage therapist was kind of a, a trendy sort of thing. It's like, Hey, you get to set your own hours and it's like, it's fun. It's, you know, there's this, this spiritual element to it and it's, it's really great. And, so people thought like, oh yeah, this is a great, and yoga teachers has kind of become like that too, of like, cool, you get to do yoga all the time, and you know, you can travel, and you get to set your own hours, and it's like, no. <laughs> 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 I mean, like, if you, especially when you're starting, you're lucky if you can like get like the 6 a.m. classes, or like all the classes that like nobody else wants. And like, there, there's so much more involved in continuing education. I mean, the Yoga Alliance, has in many ways really made the situation infinitely worse with their their standards the lack of the way that they actually police those standards what little standards there are when i was in yoga there was no such thing as a 200 hour yoga teacher training mm-hmm. there was just yoga trainings and some of them were different lengths but like there wasn't now it's the standard 200 and 300 hour that's because of yoga alliance that wasn't something that like the yoga community got together and just decided that's an appropriate number of hours like An esthetician in California needs a thousand hours of training. This is someone who's like picking pimples at your face and rubbing creams on. and think I'm sure there's, there's more to it than that. But like, I mean, now you've got a yoga teacher that's sitting there and saying, okay, I expect you to be well-versed in philosophy and not only anatomy and physiology, but things like nutrition and all these other things that people ask yoga teachers and kind of just expect that they have the answers for. You're not getting that in 200 hours. You're not getting that in 300 hours. I mean, like all you're not getting that 5,000 like that takes a lifetime of immersion in to, and so it's a lot bigger commitment than I think a lot of people realize. And so it's one of those things where we could say, like, like an actor is in LA. Like everyone's an actor in LA. Everyone's kind of a yoga teacher these days. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, like everyone that's done you know yoga for at least a little bit of time, they've done a yoga teacher training, and that creates its own challenges and problems as well. So it's an interesting time for sure to be a yoga teacher right now.
2: And so, do you have any advice for new teachers?
1: Don't teach yoga if you like yoga. (laughs) Well, what I mean by that is teach yoga if you like to teach. What we need right now is more teachers, not more people that like yoga. If you like yoga, keep doing yoga. That's great. I mean, do a teacher training tool. That's cool. But like... Unless this is something that you really are passionate about as a teacher, because the the skills involved with teaching are different than the skills involved with yoga. I know a lot of people that are really good at yoga. They're horrible teachers, but they're really good at yoga. And so what they do is they just perform in front of people. And it's like, okay, but you're, you're not teaching anyone anything. You're just performing. Mm -hmm. So that's fine. You know, continue to enjoy your practice. That's amazing. But I really encourage people that like, if you have a passion for teaching and you love yoga, man, we need you. Like we, we need more of those, but it's like, if your passion is just the yoga and not the teaching, I mean, this is probably going to be a rougher road than you think, but also as you said, like the teaching aspect now becomes, it's not about you anymore. Now it's about the students. Right. If I'm teaching yoga because I love it and I share it and I want to just make it my job, then it's still about me. But if I love teaching, then immediately it becomes about the students. And it's like, well, what are their needs? As an example or some context for that of teachers saying, like, well, this is just the way that I teach. This is how I am. And it's like, oh, okay, cool. But to me, that's just me saying, like, well, I have a territory for my ego, and this is like all I'm comfortable doing. And that's fine. But again, if you're sitting in the role of a teacher, it's not about what what you're doing it's about what will land with the students the most doesn't mean don't be inauthentic or don't be yourself but how can you take yourself and offer it in such a way that it lands more effectively with your students that type of relationship and communication skills and everything else is different than the the process and experience of practicing yoga so i feel like we'd get a huge divide in teachers if we kind of start to really separate what those differences are and then encourage those that really love to teach i i mean again this goes back to the other question before but without these 200 hour and 300 hour yoga teacher training things like Actually having just immersive trainings that are for people that want to go deeper into yoga practice. Mm -hmm. Because I think a lot of people that take teacher trainings, they don't actually want to teach. They just want to go deeper in the practice. And that's the other than a workshop, that's usually the only other avenue for people to go. But that's a a pretty poor system as well. Because then let's say you divide it up, even for argument's sake, anyways, 50-50 of like 50% practice, 50% learning how to teach. Well, the people that really want to learn how to teach aren't getting enough of that. Yeah. And the people that just want to practice aren't getting enough of that. So like no one's really getting that full experience that we'd be hoping for anyways. So, you know, whether that means that people start offering more of those types of things, I don't know. But again, I mean, these, these, are, these are topics that I think take a lot more work than my ideas or one person's ideas. Like they take a community to kind of really come together and start having this dialogue more openly with what's best for everybody here rather than what's best for the dollar.
2: I do think that that idea of immersions that have nothing to do with becoming a teacher is a great idea for teachers as well who
0: want to just yeah.
2: you don't have that time to reclaim is probably the wrong word. But if you are a busy teacher quite often it is a challenge to find time for your own practice in your schedule and to find energy for it. So it's kind of amazing to just be like, okay, this week it's all about yoga.
1: That's one of those things for new teachers where they realize how difficult it is to stay up on your practice once you start teaching if you want to actually make a career of it because then you have to teach so much that it's like, it's really difficult. So to actually have that time where you're still remaining a student throughout that process is huge. Because I mean, you think of, even like the, the, I don't know statistic wise what the actual numbers would be, but I would be willing to guess that the, the average new yoga teacher is between the age of like 25 and 35 and, and kind of like where what it's gonna take to, to make it as a yoga teacher. It, it's really gonna require a lot of continued work. So it's assuming like, hey, I've been practicing yoga for, for five years and now I'm gonna go take my teacher or two years and go take a teacher training and then go teach full time. Well, now all of a sudden, if you're not a student anymore, you basically stopped your education after two years. If you're going to be a teacher, like that's unacceptable. (laughs) Really, I mean, like you have to continue. But as you pointed out, that's really hard to do when you're teaching a full schedule to make a living as a yoga teacher. So like there, there's got to be something, there, there has to be some types of changes that are made to the system itself. That's going to involve yoga teachers. That's going to involve yoga studios, yoga students. I mean, I'm still really big on the idea of a yoga teachers union. Um, you know, I don't know. I don't know of anybody that's really doing that yet, but I think that that's something that will have to happen at some point just so that the standards can, can also get very more specific, but also there's a lot more of that support for the teachers that are serious about being teachers. And we start to change around some of the dynamics between yoga teacher and studios and the yoga industry as a whole and and everything else cuz t- like teachers need to be able to support themselves doing this work and they still need the time to continue to be students just like i mean anyone you know, if you go if you're a doctor i mean you're continuing doing continuously doing continuing education to stay up on the latest techniques and the latest medicines and all this sort of stuff but a doctor is making the type of money where cool i can i can take a week off and go to this you know this sabbatical. <laughs> yeah yoga teachers like okay i need that next check so i can fill up my gas tank so i can make it to class
2: Well, interestingly enough, the system is a little bit closer to a union in Australia because we have Yoga Australia and they do have the continuing education points that you need to get every year. And if you do have a dispute with a studio, they will support you and kind of go into that for you. So they also have a lot more rigorous standard for membership. you kind of have to show how many hours you've done on anatomy and philosophy and every aspect of yoga teaching before they'll accept you as a member, as opposed to just paying your fee. Mm -hmm. So it is kind of a little bit closer to that here, but it's definitely still that sense that everyone is pretty much on their own out there, kind of Mm -hmm. (laughs) fighting their own battles, so to speak. Hopefully there aren't
1: too many battles. Well, and you say that with a giggle too, but I mean, living in a market like San Diego for a number of years, even within the yoga community, I mean, it's not like, it's not super dramatic and overt, but there's still this like sense of competition with a lot of teachers. Because, not because that's something that if you sit with any of those teachers on an individual place that that's something that they're they're thinking of on the forefront of their conscious attention but like oh i need to make sure that i get this many number of students in, so i'm making a certain amount of money so i can pay my bills and if there's other teachers and another i mean i remember in north county san diego i mean every single corner has a coffee place a hair salon and a yoga studio that's and i mean it, strategy. <laughs> yeah i mean it, it, it's literally like you see a yoga studio every block you go there's because everyone goes oh i love yoga I want to make a living with it. I'm going to start up a yoga studio. And now all of a sudden there's so many yoga studios. It's like they're all their numbers are down. They're all struggling with it. And it's like that doesn't actually add benefit to the community at all because now all of these studios have to underpay all their teachers because they're not bringing in enough. And then so they can't sustain quality teachers for very long. And so the product itself is getting worse. I mean, it's quite a big mess <laughs> that, that a lot of this is in right now. I mean, it's interesting. It'll, it will be interesting to see how things continue to evolve and develop and go from here, but it's pretty messy right now.
2: This kind sort of takes us to a slightly different topic. In the yoga community, Often I feel like there can be unrealistic expectations around health. And I've even heard some yoga teachers advise people to avoid conventional medical treatment. Um, I was wondering if you had any thoughts around that and maybe even would you like to kind of take us through some of your own health issues that you've been experiencing
1: so to talk to the first point, the amount of face palms that have happened in like my life in yoga are uncountable. Literally to the point where on the island that I lived on in Thailand, there was a time and I actually wasn't there. Is something I heard about afterwards where one of the, they were, I forgot what they were actually doing, but there's a large yoga population on the island that I lived on, mostly foreigners coming in and someone was having a seizure during something when some type of gathering that they were doing and instead of immediately getting up and like calling the police calling an ambulance calling a doctor they sat around this person and started oming at
2: them. oh boy <laughs>
1: And it's like the kind of foo-foo, woo-woo, out of, you know, feet aren't on the groundness with yoga sometimes is, is disappointing to say the least. You know, I think it's in part the fantastic, mystical, fantasy idea we have of it and want to think like, ooh, all this mystical, magical stuff. And a part of it also came too as Indians were coming to the West and trying to popularize it and also to try to legitimize it for or not four, but uh, in the face of the British who are essentially trying to put Indians down, they, they, they kind of stepped over the sense to say like, well, this is a really technical and scientific practice. And, you know, doing this posture can heal your kidneys. And like, oh, this one will like, you know, clear your adrenals. And none of it was supported by any science whatsoever. And so like, we're finally starting to unpack like, well, what is actually legitimate with these types of claims and what is not? Now, Western medicine has lots of flaws, lots of them, but it it is an amazing emergency medicine. So when there are critical problems, you break a leg, uh, you have a heart attack, that type of thing. I mean, it is, it is phenomenal in terms of its capacities to, to help people. Thank goodness we have Western medicine. They're pretty bad at supportive medicine, like making sure that someone is just naturally in that optimal state of health all the time. They're usually operating from when there's already some type of dis-ease or dysfunction in the body. Uh, and that's where, where Ayurveda and Chinese medicine is a lot more helpful of not only keeping us at a baseline, but helping us thrive a lot more instead of rather than taking us from a negative just back to, to positive again. But something else that I think is also very beneficial, because there is that not only the kind of far outside, like I mentioned before, with people oming at that person having a, a seizure, but also just the central distrust of medicine that we find in the yoga community. And, mm-hmm. you know, I, I can understand it and relate to that in the, in the aspect that medicine in the West is also very big business. And like any big business, when money is the important factor, it's going to change the direction of the business. And most of the medical industry is for that bottom line and for that dollar. So that can bring up mistrust because, well, who's funding these research studies and who's doing this? So there's all kinds of stuff kind of that grays up that area. That being said, when you have an issue, like when anytime someone, a new student comes to my class, I mean, one of the first things I will say is other than after introducing yourselves is like, hey, do you have any injuries? And whenever they say, the next question is always like, well, have you seen a doctor or a physical therapist about it? Because as a yoga teacher, I mean, I've been studying anatomy consistently and steadily since I was in my early 20s. It's still something that I have no business what and I teach yoga or I teach anatomy to yoga teachers and saying that I have no business diagnosing anyone or guessing at anyone what's going on with their body it's not only unethical at least in California it would be illegal as well where uh, yoga teacher's not allowed to do that, although I've heard teachers do that before like oh yeah you have that problem it could be this and it's like whoa 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 like no like you say okay go see a doctor now what someone does after that well I mean that's you know, entirely their own business, but the Western medicine is great at at least looking at the body and trying to decipher what's going on now you can take those tests and everything else afterwards and then decide how you want to engage it maybe in a more holistic way and not necessarily like just cut it out or you know take these powerful drugs whatever it may be which is the the typical kind of western route so i I always recommend people go see a doctor you know it's like do you have health insurance okay go see a doctor find out what it is and then come back and and we can talk about it more and work with your doctor to find ways that are going to help you get to most optimal health now that is something that I believe and feel, but also being said since you brought up my own health struggles I mean I've been you know suffering pretty severely for the past year specifically with some some health concerns, and I've undergone all kinds of tests and they, they essentially don't know what's wrong with me still after I just like, oh they're great at finding out this stuff um, they don't know what's going on. What my gastroenterologist diagnosed me with was IBS. But the literal words out of his mouth afterwards were, well, I feel this is IBS, which means to say, we don't know what causes it and we don't know what cures it. You just share symptoms with other people. Yeah. So it's yeah. like, cool. His, his, his advice after that conversation was try the FODMAPS diet. Good luck. Yeah. So it's like... Western medicine hasn't really given me anything to help with my condition at all. I mean, it it's told me a lot of what it isn't, and that's helpful, right? Like it's not Crohn's, it's not this or not that, but it hasn't really given me insight into what it is. So now I've got to go on my own and find, uh, I'm working with a Chinese medical doctor. I work a lot with my own stuff and my own research and trying to find out stuff. So it, it, it's kind of on me at that point to, to work with it and sort of figure things out but you know I've had a pretty messed up spine from years of martial arts and football and all this sort of stuff you know like I was getting some pain so I went and got x-rays for my spine to like see what was going on western medicine's great for that you can get a sense like ooh, do you actually are you getting compression on your discs so it's not just like oh yeah go ahead and just do more spinal twists mm-hmm. you know like you want to find out what's going on and then address it more appropriately so I wish the yoga community wasn't so anti-western medicine although that being said in america at least i don't experience that as much when i lived abroad people were very anti-western medicine even like uh, you know americans that were living abroad although you don't see a lot of americans traveling so it was mostly europeans australians new zealanders things like that kiwis
2: have you kind of made any changes to your own practice since your illness surfaced
1: you know my body's uncomfortable practicing a lot of the time I was just uh, having a conversation with uh, a friend of mine who's a yoga teacher who who I won't name but um he he also is suffering from IBS like symptoms and has for quite some time and you know we're joking even teaching sometimes that like you know you'll move into you'll demo a twist or something like that and all of a sudden you'll get like a violent urge to like go to the bathroom or something like that just because of the particular position that you put your body in and he's actually had to leave class before and like go and relieve himself luckily there's another teacher around they like cover the class for him and stuff i've been i've never left a class but i've actually like you know had people like okay I, this is my secret now now I'm, I'm letting it out but it'll be like oh okay everyone child's pose mm-hmm. and then like i'll i'll sit and like hold my stomach in the corner and, like breathe for a minute or two until it passes and then i'll stand up it's definitely affected not only my, my ability to practice but also to teach so it's it's definitely hard. My practice at home, even like the first few years of after having a daughter, became much more mellow than it used to be but now doing mellow practices, if I'm in an uncomfortable place, man, it's really hard to stay in certain shapes very long. So that becomes compromised. But also, some days I'm totally zapped on energy. So doing an active practice is difficult. I mean, I guess we all go through that the energy levels anyways. But you know, this being because maybe I, I, you know, went to the bathroom five times before 9am or something. So that's why I'm my energy zapped. So yeah, it's definitely been complex and, and difficult. And The first, I'd say, six months at least was all about like, I'm going to fix this. I'm going to conquer this. I'm going to figure this out. And the stress of that alone caused probably just as many, just as much of an amplification of the symptoms as anything else. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm, Yeah. So... It shifted a lot. And, and maybe, um, I mean, Rain, you can, you can relate to this I mean, with, with everything that that's, has gone and continues to go on with you. No matter what you think about, like there's, there's nothing that's all of a sudden gonna like, you're not gonna just grow a stomach back. No. Um, you, you've had to learn like, what does my life look like without a stomach? And how do I navigate that? To me, the process of recognizing how do I navigate my health rather than try to like fix it Mm -hmm. Um, has been pretty transformative in terms of my interactions and how it then comes up in my practice and everything else. Where it's not so much about like, oh, what's the yoga posture or practice that will make this stuff go away? It's more about like, wow, how can I find uh, harmony within myself while there's still this, this, this thing that feels like it's knocking me out of my harmony? And just finding more of that that balance and that conversation rather than that, you know, elimination of the undesirable thing. Um, so it, it's definitely been a, a journey in the last you know, year in particular, but with, with all the health
0: stuff. Absolutely. I know when we've sort of done some research on yoga for helping digestive issues, a lot of the traditional poses seem to be actually really compressive and... <laughs> Um, Really uncomfortable. uncomfortable Yeah, really uncomfortable. Not that helpful at all. For sure. Yeah. I mean, that's
1: the things that kind of stimulate blood flow to those areas. If you have issues there, like that's not even really an option, a lot of that stuff, for sure.
2: Yeah, they all seem to be on the stimulating end of the spectrum. Whereas when you kind of look at how the vagus nerve works and that connection between the parasympathetic nervous system and healthy digestion, it seems like the soothing postures are kind of ultimately more beneficial for a greater number of people.
1: Well, I think that, I mean, tapping into once you, you bring the conversation into the realm of the nervous system, you know, I mean, sure, some certain shapes might be more advantageous, but really then it, we're, st- we're getting into more conversations around the breath and attention and things like that, which, which are hopefully coming into a yoga class as well. But mm-hmm. and as you said, like the most modern postural practices aren't really designed for the parasympathetic nervous system. It's like, especially here in the West where classes have not only gone from like 90 90- minutes to 75 and 60 but shavasanas have gone from like 15 to 10 to 5 to 3 where like that integration of like hey let your your nervous system actually calm down because you were just jumping forward and back and bouncing on one foot and like straining really hard and your nervous system super jacked up and now you're just gonna lay down for 60 seconds and get up and go on your day again like that's insane (laughs) but that that that's what's so common it's like oh who has time because i mean that's a big cultural thing too as well especially in the west of like west time for shavasana that's doing nothing i need to always be doing something i mean you know we're, we're talking on a podcast i mean how many people myself included if you're like i'm not just going to go for a walk i'm going to go for a walk and listen to a podcast mm-hmm. so it's like we're always trying to do something extra and added where doing nothing in our culture is 10 uh, is typically seen as being lazy and it's like what do you mean do nothing so shavasana is like ugh Dude, that's just being lazy, you know, like I want to do I need to do more chaturangas to get my benefits from the practice It's like, oh man. No take a longer shavasana, please You'll get so much more from actually flipping that switch than by doing 10 more chaturanga
0: So to switch the topic again completely I know recently you had alan watts daughters on your podcast And they brought up the fact that despite being a, a great spiritual and philosophical leader He wasn't such a good father and I know that you're a father and a man who wants to be a good father. So I'm just wondering how you integrated that information. Well, that was a really
1: special conversation for me as well, just because he is someone whose work I've really admired and looked up to for a number of years, was exposed to it very early on as well, back from when I had, was doing martial arts with my jiu sensei. And so I was really interested in in hearing about you know, what what they thought of him as a father because... We often get the model of spiritual teacher as like the lone ascetic, you know, the guru who doesn't have to deal with the family because he's, he's given that all up. And so I'm always interested in examples of people that can still uphold the model of a teacher who, for lack of a better term, you know, spiritual teacher, but also... Like, their, their life is is organized and settled. You know, I always think of that, that Ram Dass quote of, like, if you think you're enlightened, go home and spend time with your family. <laughs> um, but that, to me, like, that's actually, that's it. Like, what, one of the things that my sense I used to always say is, like, look, anybody can find peace on a mountain. It's peaceful up there. Can you find it in the city? And it's, like, that's, that's accomplishment. And to me, that's the same thing of, like, if it doesn't work with my family, then how valuable is it? If it's not working with those around me, how valuable is it? And, you know, I mean, I still think there's lots of value in the work of, of Alan Watts. I'm, I mean, I still, to this day, listen to uh, his lectures often, but I think that there's, there's something there of like recognizing, like, how do we integrate these teachings into our lives? Now, for me specifically, like I am a father. So that's a really big part of it where if if the things that I'm teaching and the things that I'm practicing aren't being applied to my life in a way that I I could sit and say like, yes, I'm I'm fully proud, wouldn't it be the right word, but I'm like, this is how I want to show up in the moment. Because mm-hmm. um, I think that's an easy thing where like we can kind of get in our heads and, and say, well, like we're justified in doing this, this or that, or we have to do this, this or that. But moment to moment, like, am I okay with showing up as how I'm showing up? And, you know, that's something that when you're working as a yoga teacher for example and you're teaching 20 classes a week and you're running here and there and there and you're stressed out because like how do you pay your bills doing all this sort of stuff well does that come across with my family Um, am I impacting them because I'm going to all these places and doing this and doing that like how am I showing up for them and it's a constant part of my own personal practice and reflection I mean that was I'd say even the big shift that when I was so exposed to the Patanjali type of idea of spirituality and that transcendence where again, the family would be viewed as an obstacle. There's something in the way of spirituality. So the the difference between time meditating and the time with, you know, my daughter, well, meditating would be the one because that's the one where you find truth. Well, that, that's Patanjali's model. I mean, that's the model of a, a lot of spiritual traditions, but it's not the model of Tantra. And that particular, like when I started getting exposed to authentic Tantric philosophy, that really shifted everything for me to recognize that like, wow, really, this is about You know, it it, it was something that actually was mirroring my experiences, Uh, having all these experiences growing up and feeling the connection and oneness with everything and then coming to a spiritual tradition or traditions that said, no, 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 no. This is all just an illusion that oneness is actually something other than all of this. And so get past all of this, let it go, give up your attachment to it, get to some other place. That's what spirituality is. The tantric practice said, well, yes and no. I mean, there is that transcendent experience. There's that otherness. But the, what we're experiencing here, it's not that it's not real. It's just as real as that otherness. The problem is not an actually illusion. The, the problem is the fact that we've misidentified who we are in this equation. And so we suffer because we've an example that, you know, given is like uh, if you're a method actor right you're you're going into a part and you're playing your part so you you suspend who you are to be this other thing and really live in it well with us we're that's what consciousness that's what god is doing with all of us we've just forgotten that like we think we actually are the part that we're playing and not realizing that we're the actor behind it all which then changes the way that we can relate to it because like if this is it and there's nowhere to go there's nothing to transcend there's nowhere to get to but this is it well then my Interaction with my daughter is my practice to connect with God. My, my interaction with my wife, with a stranger walking across the street, to a student, anyone, that is a practice of connecting with God. With, that, that is yoga right there. So there's nothing that separates yoga as other, right? Like yoga is just this thing that I do on my rectangular rubber mat in a room full of sweaty strangers, you know, or like I do in my room by myself when nobody else is around me everything is yoga. And so that to me really shifts all of that stuff where seeing it as a practice. So in those moments when we're tired or we're stressed or we're, you know, grumpy, whatever it may be of like, okay, but can I pull away from that for a moment, check in with myself and recognize like, well, if I'm actually coming from that understanding of who I am, would that change the way that I act? And the vast majority of time, the answer is yes. So there's the practice.
2: That's such a great way to put it. You've talked a bit on your podcast about the dangers of becoming a bliss bunny in your practice. Would you like to describe what that is and how to move past it? And maybe you just have.
1: <laughs> well, I mean, I, I think, you know, that that's kind of it, um, for sure. The, the The bliss bunnies are the especially if you've never man i mean a lot of people in our especially in western culture it's a very mind centered culture the body is kind of thrown to the wayside for thought and that that creates all kinds of issues so you got people coming into the practice for the first time and they're they're feeling their bodies in ways that they haven't felt it before and you know there's all these amazing ecstatic techniques where like hey, you know, if you just kind of grew up as you know, regular Joe Schmo or Jane, Jane Smith, you know, perhaps you've never had this type of experience of just utter bliss and, and the high that you can get from a simple act of breathing. Um, so it can be pretty impactful. And so a lot of people can get stuck there. And, and this is something that, that I talk about a lot in classes where not even necessarily the bliss bunny aspect of it, but the sense of feeling, right? Like if yoga is just about a feeling, well, yoga or feelings are temporary, like they change. I mean, think of like at the end of a yoga class, like notice how you feel after doing your yoga practice. It's like, cool, but then you get in the car and someone cuts you off on the freeway and you're like back to being stressed out again. Like the, the feeling is, is temporary. Yoga is not, not as interested in getting you connected to the temporary stuff. It wants you to go deeper in that to the stuff that's not temporary. It, now, some traditions like, like you know, Samkhya, it's essentially go away from the world, go to that truth and stay there all the time. But, you know, the Tantra say, okay, well, stay connected to that, then go back into the temporary stuff, knowing that, hey, this is just the name of the game that we're playing. So now I can live it up. I can act up my part, but not to get caught up in the and the feelings of things too much. I mean, they're, they're a wonderful gateway to this truth to, to come back to ourselves for, but the yoga, to me at least, is much more about the understanding behind it rather than the feeling that it gives us. So I'd say if you're caught up in the feelings that yoga gives you, I would encourage you to, to shift the perspective a little bit to what, what's underneath those feelings. What's the source of those feelings? Because the, we don't wanna just go chasing feeling right? Because then we get caught up in this idea that, again, like the the sort of Patanjali model of, ooh, yoga is what gives me this feeling. Life is what gives me the opposite feeling. Therefore, I need more yoga and less life. Mm. Um, like, ooh, someone, when I talk to this person, they're stressing me out. Therefore, that's a problem. What I need is more yoga. Mm. I need to go back on my yoga mat to get that feeling of calm again. But that feeling of calm and the the feeling that most people are like at that End of the day that we're really settling in is, is that same feeling for everyone. It's not something that that's specific. And that that's something that's underlying everything. That's your true nature. You don't get it by doing something per se. The doing something might, al- might allow you to let go of all the stuff that you're putting in front of that experience. But we don't want to chase the experience because then it gets, I mean, what's the difference of you know, going to yoga every day for a high than taking a line of cocaine, smoking a bong load, having a drink? Um, at that point, it becomes, uh, again, I mean, yes, we can say, well, obviously, it's a much healthier habit to go to yoga every morning rather than to like, you know, go shoot up heroin every day. Um, I mean, there, there is a contextual difference, but the mentality behind it, the mindset that I'm getting fulfilled by doing something that I'm not currently doing, and that's what yoga is. To me, that's a really big confusion of what the practice is. Well, As we understand what our true state is, our true nature is, then the practice is, wow, when I'm getting triggered by someone in front of me, not to run away from that person and go do more yoga and have that person not be in my life, but rather to recognize like, wow, what's the... What's the opportunity here to connect to this person? Sometimes, sometimes that does mean like there's that skillfulness of like, hey, there's, there's boundaries that need to be set and things like that. Or maybe sometimes it's the elimination of boundaries and just like giving someone a hug, whatever it may be, to allow both of you to diffuse from whatever situation. Like that relationship is really, to me, that, the key of our practice. And it, it's embodied in the, the asana practice of the relationship to our tissues, but it's expressed outwardly through our relationships with people and animals and nature and in everyday life
2: that really comes back to what you're saying about how like being with your daughter can be your yoga in that moment how Mm -hmm. it's not something that you need to opt out of life to experience it's like opting into life and tuning into like what's happening for us mentally in the present moment where these thoughts might be coming from why that particular person might be pushing our buttons and what's the most skillful way to navigate that.
0: Absolutely. I guess we should probably start to wrap things up. So I've got one more question. Say someone walks in off the street, they've never been to one of your classes before. What is the one key thing that you'd like them to take away from your teachings? Well, I mean, the thing that's popping up for
1: me right now, I'd say is just cultivate a relationship with yourself.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, and and I, I don't mean that in the the narcissistic sense. Uh, I mean the self with a capital S rather than the the small s. And we we get that by by looking underneath the small s stuff. Uh, that is to say that there, there's a part of you that is you. That has been there before your current set of dislikes and likes, your current set of preferences. And, you know, that beingness was there when you were a child. It was there when you were a young adult. If you're an adult, it's it's there. All of the, the particulars of the small self perhaps have changed at that point. But there's a fundamental self underneath that. And if you if you get to know that, it's gonna change the way that you interact with everything else. Like instead of going out and trying to fix all these external things, get to know yourself. And through that process, things will start to self-organize again. Things will start to, to come to light more easily. So I think that that shift of the practice of a practice that's going to get you somewhere, a practice that's going to like fix you, like I, I need to get more flexible. I need to get more peace of mind. I need to get something and yoga is going to give me that. And therefore, that's that destination practice again, versus the practice simply just being an opportunity to get to know yourself. And, and through that knowing of like, well, wow, what is my appropriate range through this today? By learning boundaries in my practice, I'm learning boundaries in my life, right? Like learning when's an appropriate time to give effort, when's an appropriate time to back away from effort. And it really just comes down to that relationship. And if we can cultivate that with ourselves, uh, it really will shift the way that we relate to, to everyone and everything else as well.
2: Yeah, that seems like a pretty fantastic message to um, introduce people to or remind them of.
0: Well, I guess that brings us to our picks of the week. And I'll start with my one, which is a book. It's been out for a while. It's called One Simple Thing by Mitch Horowitz. And it's sort of a history of the new thought movement, which sort of led to uh, the secret and law of attraction type thought. And it's, it's fairly balanced. He calls himself a, an occult historian, so he's not anti that type of thought at all, but he has got a very uh, sort of, I guess, nuanced and um, interesting view on it. And I, I definitely recommend that people have a look at that. What about you Joe?
2: Well my thing of the week it's kind of a yoga business pick and they don't sponsor me or anything but I recently got a square reader for my small home studio and it's been so good because in the past people had to like pay online or pay me cash and I wasn't that great about following up who'd actually paid me online when they said they were going to but now I can just like get them to tap their card put the money amount into the app which is really easy it was really affordable so like, I found for being a one person small class yoga teacher it's actually been really awesome for me so i would recommend
0: excellent and how about you ashton
1: wow well, i didn't know that we could do like something like that too to recommend so can i can i do more than one?
2: Oh, oh yeah. So? yeah okay
1: so if we're gonna do something like a, that's like a thing i recommend everyone get something that you can hang from Uh, so many of the issues that I see with people's shoulders, both as a result of sitting around computers and behind cars and behind desks all the time, but even within the yoga practice itself, we're brachiators. We are designed to swing. Our shoulders are designed to swing and we put all this compression balancing on our hands and being on all fours in yoga. We need to hang from stuff and get people hanging. The shoulder structure changes so much so uh, you can get something to hang like, you know, those $10, $15 $10, $15 things from a sporting goods store, but you don't need to buy anything. Just, you, I mean, if you got some outside, you can hang on door frames, but hang on stuff. But if it's a thing, you know, get one of those things that you can hang on your door. They're, they're pretty cheap and pretty awesome as well. I'd recommend that to everyone, especially if you do yoga. And then, if I can, I want to recommend a book, but then there, there's a text I'll recommend on top of that. But I, I mentioned Vanamali earlier. My favorite book of hers, naturally, is is on Hanuman. It's called Hanuman: uh, The Devotion and Power of the Monkey God. Vandamali is an amazing storyteller, so it's a it's great. Kind of goes over the history mostly through the Ramayana of of Hanuman on that, but that's a really fun. If you like stories, uh, if you like Hindu mythology, and she she does give some philosophical context through it. That's a really fun book, and I like it. And then if I can, I'm I'm on a bit of a mission myself right now, as is in terms of trying to shift a little bit the the commonality of seeing things like Patanjali's Yoga Sutras uh, in standard in every teacher training and really want to encourage people to find uh, tantric texts the one that i'd recommend the most is the shiva sutras just because that's the one that uh, has the the biggest impact on my life so there's lots of translations out there some are more scholarly some are less scholarly swami lakshman jews Version is probably the least scholarly, but it's still a little kind of hard to digest. There's a lot of other ones out there. There's some other great texts like the Pratyabhijna Hridayam. Um, Harish Wallace just brought out a, a new translation of that with commentary. But Shiva Sutras, just to, to narrow that down, would be if you can get a copy of the Shiva Sutras. One of the things uh, I know this is just a pick, and I'm, I'm I'm saying a little bit more about it. But one of the things that we get is that if we're we're getting a, a or that we're getting with the Shiva Sutras is we're getting a map uh, of the universe of one that is not that transcendent model that's telling you that you need to get past your life and its difficulties into some state of consciousness that you're not already in. It's really inviting you into life. It's inviting you into the moment and it gives a philosophical background and map to offer that. And it's really, I mean, if we would see this text in yoga teacher trainings versus Patanjali's yoga sutras, we'd actually be getting a text that says, Hey, you don't need to run to India and give all your possessions up to become a yogi. Like the practice is here right now in your life. So yeah, I I mean, if if anyone can get out and read a copy of that, I, I definitely recommend that as well.
0: Definitely want to check that out. And I'm glad you mentioned Christopher harish wallace because i just noticed these uh both his books are sitting on my desk here <laughs> <laughs> yeah he's awesome as well
2: and there are quite a few um, youtube videos of him as well if you find it a little bit intimidating i guess to crack open a book you can see a lot of his lectures online which can be helpful
1: sure both and i'm not sure which one particularly you meant there but both harish and lakshman Jew. so lakshman Jew has a number of recordings um, the people that are involved with his trust, uh, he passed away uh, a number of years ago, but the people that are involved with his trust, they had gone and recorded tons of lectures with him. So his books and stuff oh, are, are right, transcribed versions. Yeah, and they've got that. But yeah, Harish has, he's got all kinds of awesome courses and, and free content and all kinds of stuff. He's, he's one of those, uh, he's kind of the, the modern breed of like scholar, practitioner, and like social media adept. So he, he has lots of uh, lots of things online that he offers, which is great.
0: Excellent. And actually, just to go back to your uh, pick about hanging, it just so turns out that Joe teaches uh, anti gravity yoga in our little studio behind the house. So yeah, there's lots <laughs> of hanging
2: out at our place. <laughs> yeah, nice.
0: Excellent. Well, um, thanks so much for speaking with us today, Ashton. It's been a great conversation. I've learned a lot out of this. So. I'm incredibly grateful uh, to you and to you sharing your time and experience with us.
2: And thank you so much for all of the information and time and energy and love that you put into your own podcast offerings. We'll definitely link to that as well.
1: Well, thank you both very much, and it was a pleasure to finally get to speak with you. And you know, Rain, we've been we've been chatting for quite some time now, so it's nice to finally uh, to to chat like this and. You know, I hope uh, things continue to go well with your guys' podcast and and everything else. And uh, it's been really fun chatting with you guys today. So thanks so much for for having me on here. And best of luck with everything that you're doing. thank Thank you.
0: So that was our episode. I'm sure you can see why Ashton has been such an influence on myself. Speaking of influences, our next episode is with someone I've known for a very short time but already I feel he's changed many things about how I see myself and, well, everything really. Next episode, we'll be sharing an interview with David Packman. David Packman is the president of Meditation Australia, but as you'll hear in our interview, he is simply inspirational. I'll leave it at that before I start gushing too much, but I really can't wait to get this episode out. Finally, we would really love to hear from you. You can drop a note on our website at podcast.flowartist.com or look for us on Facebook or Twitter. We know you're listening, but we would really like to start a conversation with you. Tell us what you like and even what you don't like so we can make this podcast the best that it can be. The theme song in this podcast is Baby Robots by Ghost Soul and used with permission. Do yourself a favour and get his music from ghostsoul.bandcamp.com. Thanks again, big, big. Love.